Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Captain's Log, the show devoted to discussions and insights into pop culture with an emphasis on cinema in the occasional themed episodes. This is your captain speaking, Jose Valle, and it's time for us to begin our transmission. Stardate 01 2019 Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. And the first episode of 2019. <laughs> that is crazy to think about the fact that we are almost out of the 2010s. Like, when you learn in history, in about 1910, 1920s, like, that, that is us now. We are living in the 2000s. Like, we're going to be out of the 2010s pretty soon like we're going to be out of this decade which is insane to think about for me i mean for me it's personally it's crazy for me to think that i've been on this earth for almost 20 years and i've lived through two decades like that's insane anyway um uh, i've been off the air i've been away from the microphone so to speak for about a month now but now i'm back uh but while i was gone i had the opportunity to watch some very good movies uh, that I will be talking about in the shows to come. Yeah, actually, one of them is tonight's topic. Uh, this is a film that I got to watch back home over the break, and a film that I was very excited to see and very pleased with. So pleased, in fact, that I watched it three times. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. The Sony Gamble, their second big Spider-Man risky movie of 2018. But unlike Venom, this one is good and we'll get into why it's good later on in the show but before that we have to get into the news with our famous segment did you see the news all right did you see the news that after ruling the u.s critics award circuit roma continued its dominance on the other side of the atlantic as the london film critics circle announced its winners Days after landing seven BAFTA nominations, fellow Paisano, Alfonso Cuarón's, who was the director of Gravity, um, his Mexico City memory piece won Film of the Year and Director of the Year honors from the group. The film takes a look in the year of a middle-class family in Mexico City in the early 1970s. And after watching the trailer, it looks very interesting and intriguing, a film that I will definitely be watching. Um, as my mother, you know, she, she grew up in those times just a bit south of Mexico City in the state of Jalisco. And when I say just a bit south, it's actually quite a ways south if you know anything about the ge- geography of Mexico. Um, but anyway, she grew up in the state of Jalisco, um, which was in, all across Mexico. They were all kind of in a similar economic situation. Um, but after hearing the stories of, of said economic struggle and turmoil and you know, that the middle class and low income families faced during those times. Like, it intrigues me to see how Alfonso Cuaron's story portrays all of this. And of course, I love, 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 love supporting stories that go outside of the usual Hollywood uh, blockbuster story formula. Watch more indie films, folks. You'll be surprised on the stories you're missing out on. Some good, good stories there. All right, did you see the news that Oscar nominations have been announced? They were announced on Tuesday, 
and are as follows. All right, here's the full list of the 2019 Oscar nominations. For Best Picture, we have Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Green Book, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. For Lead Actor, we have Christian Bale with his work in Vice, Bradley Cooper from A Star is Born, Willem Dafoe from At Eternity's Gate, Rami Malek from Bohemian Rhapsody, Viggo Mortensen for Green Book. For lead actress, we have Yalitza Aparicio for Roma, Glenn Close for The Wife, Olivia Colman for The Favorite, Lady Gaga for A Star Is Born, and Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me. For best supporting actor, we have, Mar- I always mess up his name, but I think it's Marsha- Marshala Ali for Green Book, Adam Driver for Black Klansman, Sam Elliott for A Star Is Born, Richard E. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me, and Sam Rockwell for Vice. All right, for Best Supporting Actress, we have Amy Adams for Vice, Marina de Tavira uh, for Roma, Regina King for If Beale Street Could Talk, Emma Stone for The Favorite, and Rachel Wise for The Favorite. For Best Director, we have Spike Lee with Black Klansman, Powell Palinkowski for Cold War, Yorgos Lathimos for The Favorite, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, and Adam McKay for Vice. For Best Animated Feature, we have Incredibles 2, uh, directed by Brad Bird, Isle of Dogs, directed by Wes Anderson, Mirai, directed by Mamura Hosoda, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, directed by Rich Moore and Phil Johnston, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, directed by Bob Pers... <laughs> He's got an interesting last name. Bob Persichetti, that is the most Italian New York last name I've ever heard. If he is not from New York, I will eat my shoe. Um, Peter Ramsey and Rodney Rotham. For Best Animated Short, we have Animal Behavior, directed by Allison Snowden and David Fine. Bao, directed by Domi Shi. Late Afternoon, directed by Luis Bagnell. One Small Step, directed by Andrew Chesworthy and Bobby Pontillas. And Weekends, directed by Trevor Jimenez. And for Best Adapted Screenplay, we have The Ballad of Buster Scrubs by the Cohen brothers, Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen. Black Hat Klansman by Charlie Wetchell, David Rabinowitz, uh, Kevin Wilmont, and Spike Lee. Can You Ever Forgive Me by Nic- uh, Nicole Holofcener and Jeff Witte. If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins. And A Star Is Born by, uh, by Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, and Will Fetters. And for Best Original Screenplay, we have The Favorite by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara, First Reformed by Paul Schrader, Green Book by Nick Valenloga, Brian Curry, and Peter Ferrelli, Roma by Alfonso Cuaron, Vice by Adam McKay, and for Cinematography, we have Cold War with the cinematographer Lucas Zal, The Favorite, Robbie Ryan, Never Look Away, Caleb Deschanel, Roma, Alfonso Cuaron, A Star Is Born, Matthew Lebedicki, and there's a lot more doc. There's a lot more categories, but those are the ones that I that I look forward to. This is gonna be really nerdy, but those are the ones that I look forward to every Oscars. The Oscars is my Super Bowl. It is what I stay up to watch. It is what has me on the edge of my seat. What has me shouting and screaming and crying and laughing and giggling and yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty nerdy like that. Um, but it is it is really interesting to see Alfonso Cuaron uh, being nominated for so many different uh, categories. The man has this. I think this is his year. 
He has been dominating the award circuit. Did you see the news that tonight's topic, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, has won the Animated Movie Award at the Producers Guild Awards? It topped The Grinch, Isle of Dogs, Incredibles 2, and Ralph Breaks the Internet. It should be mentioned that the last three PGA winners in animation have also won the Oscar in said category, which is very promising news, as I believe this is going to be the winner of Best Animated Film, as nothing else that has come out this year stands close. While I loved all of the other nominations, none of them truly nailed it like Spider-Verse did. And we'll get into why I believe that in a bit, but it is also worth mentioning that Spider-Verse took home Best Animated Picture at the Golden Globes, so things are kind of looking their way. Alright, did you see the news that the new Ghostbusters movie has been announced by director Jason Reitman, son of Ivan Reitman, the original director and producer of the original uh, Ghostbuster films? And its announcement that it would be ignoring the all-female Ghostbusters alternate timeline reboot and would instead be a continuation of the timeline and events of the first two films has already set some people online ablaze. One of which was Leslie Jones, who played Patty Tolan in the all-female reboot. She expressed her feelings in a series of tweets online using some very colorful language, but what she essentially said was that it was a very Trump-like move to ignore their film, which in itself ignored the continuity of the original two films. Now, I understand her being upset um, that they aren't continuing the universe she was a part of. I get that. If I was her, if I was in her situation, if I was in her shoes, I would be pissed too, you know? But that is how Hollywood is. When a reboot isn't successful, they tend to simply continue where the last one's left off. For example, the recent Halloween reboot, which ignored more than six Halloween sequel films and two reboot films to, con- to instead continue the timeline of the first, or the upcoming RoboCop sequel, which will ignore the 2014 reboot. So, you know, I don't think that this is Reitman choosing to ignore the 2016 film because he thinks, quote, that women can't be Ghostbusters, unquote, as Jones suggests, but rather because studios felt that a continuation would be best. And many fans agreed. But I will be fair here. The 2016 film did open the floodgates to many, many sexist fans of the originals. But you also have to understand that the 2016 reboot was a reboot, a universe where the original Ghostbusters did not exist. So it would be very tricky to include said universe and characters in this film. This new film is expected to bring back the surviving cast of the originals, Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson, and Dan Aykroyd, who all cameoed in the 2016 reboot as completely different characters. Um, It is also said to have a younger teenage cast as they're pulling inspiration from Stranger Things, and it is said that the main cast will consist of two boys and two girls, so, you know, women can be Ghostbusters. This new film was developed in secret and shoots this summer and is scheduled for a 2020 release, and I'm sure we will hear one of the Reitmans address Jones' concerns and comments before... Then. And finally, did you hear the news that the trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home broke Sony's record for most YouTube views in 24 hours, making it the studio's biggest digital launch since the record set by, wouldn't you know it, Spider-Man Homecoming. Deadline reported that in the first 24 hours after the trailer dropped, it got a whopping 130 million views. Insane. Just insane. 
And that's all the news we got. Now, let's jump into Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is a story of young teenager Miles Morales as he is bitten by a radioactive spider and becomes the second Spider-Man of his universe, crossing paths with five other Spider-People from other dimensions to stop a threat that threatens all other realities, the multiverse, or should we say, the Spider-Verse. It is based on many and many different comic book story arcs, but mainly takes inspiration from the Spider-Verse crossover event and the Miles Morales Ultimate Spider-Man run. For those of you not familiar with the character of Miles Morales, uh, simply put, he exists in the Ultimate Universe of the Marvel continuity, where the heroes are slightly different than the ones you might have grown up with. There, Peter Parker is much younger, but still the Spider-Man you all know and love. One day, Miles is bitten by a radioactive spider and becomes the second Spider-Man. In the comics, the spider comes from Oscorp, but in this movie, it seems to originate from Alchemax. But regardless, they're both very shady organizations, so. If you want to know more about this character and his comic book backstory or the Spider-Verse crossover, I suggest you pick up the respective comic books and do some reading, because they are really good. I own both of them, and they are amazing, amazing, well-written, well-illustrated, great story, great characters. Anyway, today we're going to be doing an interesting examination of this film, why it worked, the look, the characters, the tragedy and greatness of a specific character, and Miles and the future of this potential franchise, and let's get into it. It is worth mentioning that for my review, I will be basing some of my discussion points from a series of videos posted by the YouTube channel Captain Midnight and thoughts expressed on the Weekly Planet podcast, and my own opinions. So if you're interested in more about this film, I recommend you check those two sources out, and subscribe to both of them. They are amazing, great, great creative uh, uh, content. They're good. They're both good. Let's begin. I want to start off with this question. Do you guys remember Justice League? That film was Warner Brothers' attempt to kickstart an entire cinematic universe without giving each individual character its own universe the opposite of what Marvel accomplished. And it wasn't great. It failed at what it set out to do. And many people, myself included, thought, well, of course it did. You can't present these intricate and complex characters with decades and decades worth of development without introducing the general audience to them first. Except that is exactly what this film did. At the end of the day, this film is franchise filmmaking. It's world building. Sony would love to thwip out a franchise out of this. I'm sure they would love to launch an entire series of on Miles, Spider-Gwen, and who knows, maybe even Spider-Ham. I remember when this film first released their trailers, I was a bit skeptical if this could work. I was, and still am, a huge fan of the Miles Morales character and the Spider-Verse crossover. I own the whole series, like I mentioned earlier. But I thought that Sony wouldn't be able to successfully pull this off without introducing us to the specific characters. However, after watching this film, I was incredibly impressed on how they coherently, coherently being the key word here, pulled this off. I have to say that this is one of the most impressive animated movies I have seen, period. And that isn't just visually speaking. I mean this in terms of the script. For a movie that features multiple realities, super-powered individuals, and a talking pig with spider powers, it feels so real. 
the conversations and the emotions presented in this film feel so real. The scenes between Miles and his dad Jefferson, a kind of uptight cop, had so much depth. Captain Midnight echoed my own feelings when he talked about how he'd been a fan of the Miles character for a long time, but thought that this was the best representation of the character in a while. And I completely agree. In this film, they presented him as his own character, less dependent and very different than Peter Parker. Unlike in the comic books and the recent Spider-Man PS4 game, which are both great, but just sort of have Miles as this different Peter, but still Peter, you know? A younger, um, a younger ethnically diverse Peter, basically. <laughs> but still, great, great, great stories. And I just feel like the comic books never nailed this. What makes any version of Spider-Man great is that at the end of the day, they are young characters who are presented with huge responsibility and have to decide the type of individual they will become. And that is sort of the through line of Miles' story. And we can see it play out in the two people he looks up to the most, neither of which is Peter Parker. They are his dad and uncle. This is an area that improves on Brian Bendis' run. If you were to put it simply, it would be Jefferson is good and Aaron is bad. But the greatness of this film is that it isn't so simple. It's much more complex. It's much more deeper than that. Aaron isn't presented as the careless criminal that he is in the comics, the much less cool version and much more thuggish version of the Prowler. He instead encourages Miles to show his talent, even if it isn't exactly legal, and cares about his interests. He's a guy who is clearly in over his head and is willing to do some dirty stuff to get by as the villainous prowler. And then there's Jefferson, who isn't presented as a clear-cut, strict, uptight cop either. He wants the best for Miles. He really, really does. But he has a hard time communicating with Miles the same way that his brother Aaron does. To me, this felt real. A realistic relationship. And I think it's an aspect of the movie that might not get talked about as much, but it's, it, it, it is really great, and I think it's worth noting because it shows how much care went into the storytelling. This movie was an amazing experience because it was almost so much better than it had the right to be. It managed to mesh so many different styles and tones with such a convoluted plot to start a new franchise, and it shouldn't work. But just like Miller and Lord's other works, The Lego Movie and 21 Jump Street, it just nails it. I walked out totally blown away by this film because it is one of the best testaments to the power of the Spider-Man character and the core ideas that have always been behind the character. They've sort of been pushed farther than ever here and it was amazing. And that tribute to Stan Lee and Steve Ditko at the end of the movie, oh man, it it really, really got me. And the idea of exceeding expectations is a great one. Mixed with a message that anyone can be a hero Anyone can wear the mask, as they say, is an amazing one. It's the idea that Lee and Ditko tried to explain to us so many years ago. This movie works because despite being a superhero movie, at the end of the day, it's about people, family, and growth. It's about being faced with tremendous responsibility and learning to handle and carry the weight of said responsibility. It is about how we face the great expectations that we are sometimes faced with, about how our actions have consequences, about loss, about how sometimes we drift away from the ones we care about. It is an everyday human story presented as a superhero one. The key to the Spider-Verse, as Amy Pascal said, is character and emotion. That is the thing that makes all of Marvel so rich. And that's what Stan Lee did. 
And I think that is the most important thing, is never to forget that. Never to get confused that it's about anything else. And that soundtrack, oh man, amazing. I like that it was this blend of hip-hop and Latin influence, just like Miles is a mix of the two. And it is also music that the character would listen to. And it just helps add to the realness. It wasn't this over-the-top dramatic score, but a bunch of great songs that, that help present the message of the movie. Spider-Verse is a visually stunning film. Stunning because it is so different. Yet to comic book readers, it is so familiar. According to Patrick O'Keefe, one of the film's two art directors, it was all about basic principles. Appreciation of the printed comic book form itself, the graphic simplification of animation and admiration of live-action cinematography, and then stretching the boundaries of the design as far as possible without breaking the whole thing. They used styles and techniques that were used in the early days of comic books to create the look for this film. And as you watch it, it is almost as if you're watching a comic book come to life. And this, this is because they used things such as Bendé dots, which were used in comic books to give the illusion of fully coloring a panel without the cost associated with doing that. Similar thing was done with hatching, which helped with shadows. They also used thought bubbles to express inter internal monologues and comic book sounds being displayed on screen as they would have been in print. All of this mixed with the studio's use of color helped sort of immerse the viewer into this world. The most fun part of watching all the different characters is seeing how their respective styles of animation work so well with the look of Miles' world. And all this is really tough to put into words. All I can say is that as I sat there, and watched this film for the first time in 3D, I was blown away and left speechless. It is a beautiful, beautiful film, and I have to give it to the animators because they did an amazing job bringing this multiverse to life. Now, let's talk characters. First one is, as the Weekly Planet would say, original recipe good guy Peter Parker. The one from Miles' universe. He's in the prime of his life, 25-year-old, and he appears at the beginning of this film. He's sort of a mix of the Spider-Man we've gotten in the movies, a bit of Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire, and the Spider-Man from recent PS4, uh, from the recent PS4 game of the same name. He is voiced by Chris Pine, and he's sort of this perfect version of Spider-Man. The next character is Gwen Stacy, who, outside of Miles and Peter B. Parker, has the biggest role in the film. The truth about Gwen Stacy, outside of Emma Stone's take on the character, is that she was never really interesting. I mean, the Spider-Man writers got rid of her for a reason. She was never really anything more than a love interest for Peter Parker. She was nice and supportive and very pretty, but that doesn't make for a compelling character as we all know. Unlike Mary Jane, who literally burst onto the pages of the comics with her confidence and charming personality, and who can forget the famous line of, Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Outside of her death, there was never really anything interesting about Gwen Stacy, but that changed with Emma Stone's performance and with the Spider-Gwen comic book run that saw her as the Spider-Person of her reality, rather than original recipe Peter Parker Spider-Man. And this is the Gwen that we see in Spider-Verse. She is this interesting and vague character, but she still manages to feel like a real individual. This is a very badass rocker girl who, despite only being Spider-Woman for two years, understands the responsibility of the job, and knows that sometimes you have to make the tough choices, and she's absolutely willing to make them. And Haley Steinfeld did an amazing job bringing this version of the character to life, without a doubt. Penny Parker, Spider-Man Noir, and Spider-Ham are also great. All of them are given enough characterization to remain interesting and not just be punchline. Each of these characters were voiced by Kimoko Glenn, Nicolas Cage, and John Mulaney, respectively. 
the movie does a great job of selling that each of these characters has an entire universe with its own style, tone, look, and rules. And not just because I'm a huge fan of his stand-up, but I really feel like John Mulaney as Spider-Ham is one of the best and smartest comedy castings of 2018. He is amazing as Spider-Ham in a way that I think most people weren't prepared for. You know, the old-timey voice, the Looney Tunes physics, it all works so well. I think a lot of Spider-Man fans had sort of mixed feelings about an older and cruder version of Parker. And this character bears a lot of resemblance to another of Jake Johnson's characters, Nick Miller of New Girl. They're both slobs, both very funny, and I love the character of Nick Miller, but I wasn't sure if I could buy him as Parker. But after watching the film... I realized that I actually really enjoyed this version of the character. The writers of the comics tend to never really let Peter get old, because after a certain point, it feels like there isn't a story left to tell. He just repeats the same thing over and over again, a thing that Spider-Verse uses to its advantage. The fact that his life is this sort of endless cycle of beating up bad guys and saving the city, and has been since his teenage years, is why he's such an emotionally stunted adult. He sort of peaked in his late teens, early 20s, just like a child actor or a promising young athlete would. He's been doing the same thing for so long that he's afraid to move on, which leads to his conflict with Mary Jane, who's ready for the na next stage of her life, which makes this a very dark and tragic take on the character. This Peter Parker isn't just who Miles wants to be like, like he is in the comics, but he's also a sort of cautionary tale of what to avoid. A lot of people say that superhero stories are, at their core, a power fantasy for the reader or viewer. As Captain Midnight said, there is a reason kids wear capes or play with action figures when they're younger. As a young kid, being a superhero and doing heroic things is such an amazing and euphoric feeling. And perhaps that never goes away. But as you grow older, the reality of aging is the complete opposite of that fantasy. There is sort of a real sadness of seeing legends fade rather than going out with a big bang. Superheroes never have to face that reality if we don't want them to. When he started out his career in the 60s, Parker was only 16, and he's never really gotten too far from that youth. Now in the comics, they've even taken him back to his early college years. He will always sort of stay in this stage of stunted development, never really having his life together. That is what makes his older Peter in Spider-Verse so compelling. We got an older Peter Parker, and he isn't exactly aging gracefully. Spider-Verse is special because it is sort of refreshing seeing Parker grow older and continue doing what he does while slowly losing his passion for the job, rather than one big dramatic action stopping him from being Spider-Man. Spider-Man was created with the intention of being a relatable character, so seeing an older version of Parker dealing with his problems, being stuck in a rut, afraid of moving on to the next stage in life with MJ, and becoming disillusioned with the work he was once so passionate about, feels real to the audience and intrigues us. I think a lot of people can see themselves in that. Although this movie is a Miles Morales movie, it does a lot with Peter's character in a manner that is much sadder than it might appear at first glance. For instance, there's a scene in which Miles tries to deliver Uncle Ben's iconic line of with great power comes great responsibility, and Peter just shuts him down. He might still try to live by those words, but at this point, he can't help but resent them. They've hung over his entire life since he was a teen, inspiring, I'm sure, but also making him live with a lot of guilt. The more you think about this, the more complex this character story arc becomes. We have seen older versions of comic book characters before. 
for instance, Old Man Logan, but most take place in darker alternate futures. Whereas here, it wasn't some ultra-dark apocalyptic future that made him miserable, it was just getting old and getting bored with it all. By the end of the movie, he is out of his rut, but I would still like to see more of his story. I've already touched a bit on Miles' inspiration, his father and his uncle, but now let's talk about his characterization. Miles is a teen, growing up in Brooklyn, the son of an African-American father and a Puerto Rican mother. His life is flipped upside down, not because he becomes Spider-Man, but because he is pushed by his parents to leave behind his public schooling in pursuit of a private education. And although this isn't the main focus of the film, it is touched on upon, in my opinion, heavily in the first bit of the film. Miles has great expectations placed on his shoulders even before he becomes Spider-Man. And at the start, he isn't ready to deal with these expectations. We see this when he tries to get himself kicked out of school by purposely failing classes. He feels like he doesn't belong, not just at school, but also in the eyes of his father. He feels that he won't be able to live up to the expectations of his dad and this school. But as he is pushed into this world of heroics, we see him go from a young boy to a confident young man, willing to not only step into the shoes of Spider-Man, but into the shoes of Miles Morales, the shoes of manhood as it were. They did a really great job of making Miles come across as a real teen, with his likes and behavior and actions, and and, and I say set design with quotations here because it's animated, but set design in a way, you know, how is the look of his, his room, his sort of wardrobe, all things that real teenagers would wear. And the voice actor Shamik Moore did an excellent job. Another thing that is worth noting is that the writers did an excellent job of handling Miles' uh, dual cultures, in my opinion. Um, he knew how to perfectly navigate them both, and it wasn't big and distracting like, that he was biracial, but the writers made sure we knew, and it was a small detail that I really liked. Now let's talk about the future of this franchise, as the movie ends in a way that leaves it open to further sequels. First we know, thanks to Sony's Amy Pascal, that the first sequel to follow Spider-Verse will be led by Gwen Stacy. It'll be directed by Joaquim Dos Santos of Avatar The Last Airbender and Voltron fame, and it will be written by David Callahan of Wonder Woman 1984 and Zombieland 2 fame, which are films that still haven't premiered, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. It'll be focused on Miles and Gwen, and it will explore a romance that has previously been touched on in the comics, and a thread that was considered for Spider-Verse uh, before it was decided that it didn't fit. Uh, this will serve as a launching pad for another Gwen Stacy film written by Beck Smith, that will feature Gwen and Cindy Moon, also known as Silk. Um, she's another Spider-Woman. Uh, she was bitten by the same radioactive spider as Peter Parker, um, and but instead of becoming a spider person right away, she sort of took a long, long time to train and eventually came when she was ready with her powers. Um, and it will also feature Jessica Drew, the original recipe Spider-Woman, who's very, very different than the rest of these spider people. She doesn't have the traditional spider powers and abilities or look. Still an interesting and compelling character. And while there are other many Spider-Man related projects, many, many, look it up, uh, in the works, these two are the only confirmed projects that are related to Spider-Verse. Final thoughts on this movie? Amazing, uh, spectacular, superior, ultimate. I pull a section from a Vanity Fair article in which they quote Phil Lord uh, to nail my point, and it reads, Lord, meanwhile, said that this new animated Spider-Verse helps hone in on what the unifying themes of these spider stories are by dint of repeated origins and multiple spider permutations. Perhaps most crucially, though, it honors Lee's original vision. As Slot pointed out, just a few years after the Sony hack revealed the narrow definition of what studios thought Spider-Man had to be, white, straight, male, we're suddenly in an era where the question has become what can't 
Spider-Man B. Stan always said that one of the things that was so alluring about Spider-Man for readers was the mask. Anyone could have gotten bitten by the spider. Anyone could be under the mask. When you see that character running around, you can associate with it. To quote the man himself, Stan Lee, enough said. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of our show. Tune in next week at the same time and on the same frequency for another episode. I've been your Captain Jose Valle, and this has been Captain's Log. And we have reached the end of our transmission. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.